Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Centre for Geopolitics, where we look at geopolitical issues in a historical context. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined by my regular co-host Ali Ansari. We're also joined today by a regular guest, Professor Bill Hurst. Bill is Deputy Director at the Centre for Geopolitics and is Professor of Chinese Politics at the University of Cambridge. Bill, great to have you back. We've been noticing this 20th Party Congress in uh, going on in China. Obviously, there's a little bit of news surrounding it. Could you give us um, a bit of a background on what, why is this Congress so important and how does it situate within Chinese politics? Sure. So the Chinese Communist Party, like actually most communist parties in the world, and indeed most political parties in the world, has some regular meetings um, called party congresses in which the central committee convenes and elects a new central committee. That's the sort of baseline protocol of the party congress. Now, during the 1920s, there was a party congress almost every year, uh, right after the foundation of the Communist Party in 1921 until 1928. Then there were no party congresses until 1945. Then again, none until I think 1956, if I remember correctly, either 53 or 56, I forget. Then there was... One in the late 1960s, one 1973, and so all haphazard. But since 1977, they've been every five years on a very regular schedule. So 1977, 1982, 87, 92, 97, 2002, 2007, 2012, 2017, and now 2022. So it works out that there have been 20 party congresses in 100 years of the Communist Party, but it's somewhat coincidental that that uh, algorithm actually applies because they weren't every five years until uh, fairly recently. Now, along with the election of a new central committee, new policy directions can emerge uh, at the party congress and sometimes have in the past. And so we can talk, if you like, about specific party congresses in the past where really important new directions have emerged. But I think just in general, they're also a useful way of periodizing Chinese politics into kind of five-yearly um, segments uh, that we can then assess in isolation or in relation to one another. Um, this is a kind of 101 question, but who gets to go to the party congress? Because when you look at the pictures on the TV screens and the videos, there's just there's this giant hall full of people, largely men, and not all, but mostly. But what do you have to do in order to be invited? Basically, you have to be in the Central Committee. There are some additional delegates to the Party Congress, and there's a number of observers in the hall. But basically, you're a Central Committee member, which is Central Committee plus alternates. We're talking about roughly 350, 400 people. In addition to that, then you've got a number of observers and a few other invited delegates from outside the Central Committee. Uh, in terms of representation of women, which you alluded to, that actually has been a really interesting and somewhat distressing trend in that the representation of women has gotten significantly worse over the last couple of cycles of party congresses to the point where now I believe there are no women on the Politburo at all. Not even the Politburo Standing Committee, which has never had any women on it, uh, but the entire full Politburo of 25 people or 24 people has no women on it at all, which is a new trend. Yes, which which I think has been covered quite a lot in the media. Yeah. So before this party congress happened, you wrote a piece for the Centre for Geopolitics website where you quoted yourself 20 years ago yeah. and said, we should not succumb to baseless speculation, but rise to the challenge and make more use of available 
empirical indicators. And then you set out a, a series of things that you thought we should look for during the Congress. So now, now that it's finished, what has conformed to what you expected and what has surprised you out of what took place? Well, I mean, in that piece, I did admit that to some extent I was about to engage in some baseless speculation, <laughs> uh, which I then went ahead and did. And so any sort of such speculation is fallible, as indeed mine is. But I think mostly I, I, I feel pretty good about having gotten it uh, in the round pretty much correct in that some of the personnel changes, personnel changes are always the hardest to predict. So there's a bit of a surprise there. I did predict that uh, Han Zheng and uh, Li Zhanshu and possibly others would be replaced. What I was surprised to see was that Wang Yang and others were also gone. Uh, Wang Yang, I thought, was going to most likely stay, probably on the Politburo Standing Committee. He's gone. Who, who is he, Bill, just for, our, for the wider audience? Wang Yang had been the party secretary of uh, Guangdong province and uh, also had a number of other posts before that. Uh, he had been on the Politburo Standing Committee uh, previously and had been largely sort of tasked with uh, helping economic policies and expert in economic policy, generally viewed by most observers as a relative liberal. And not only did he not make another term on the Politburo Standing Committee, he was actually not even on the list of Central Committee members. So maybe we should just review quickly for those listening that the Central Committee is the entire Congress, essentially, or is, is the entirety of the, of the committee elected by the Congress. Uh, but the Central Committee only meets once a year, if that. And so the Central Committee then elects a standing committee. From the standing committee of the Central Committee is elected the Political Bureau or the Politburo, which is a committee of about 24 people, which also only meets fairly seldom. And then the Politburo elects from among its members a standing committee of the Politburo. The Standing Committee of the Politburo has been various sizes at different times, sometimes 11 or 13 people, sometimes 9. It's been 7 uh, for the last couple of rounds since Xi Jinping became the General Secretary. So in this typical so-called democratic centralist wedding cake fashion, we see a winnowing of the Central Committee down to the, the really top leaders who meet about once a week. It's kind of, you know, think of it as like an executive committee uh, where almost all of the very important top decisions are taken. And so there's a ranking even within the Politburo Standing Committee uh, from one to seven of those members. And then they have various other tasks attached to that within the party or within the state uh, or both. So I was surprised to see so much turnover in the Politburo Standing Committee. I had not expected basically everyone to go. Um, except so I think two, yeah, because two have stayed and four have been reshuffled. Brutally. Five, actually. Five have been brutally reshuffled. And are, are these all, are these now composed essentially of Xi loyalists? Is that what, yes. is that what has happened, effectively? Yes, um, we can think of it that way. So um, Li Keqiang had been the prime minister, had also been on the Politburo Standing Committee for two terms. He still is the prime minister, at least until March, uh, when the state National People's Congress convenes. Um, and that basically the meeting of parliament will reconvene in March and decide who should be the next prime minister. Probably will not be Li Keqiang again. Although theoretically, it could be. Constitutionally, there's no prohibition on that. But Li Keqiang was fairly young, or at least younger than Xi Jinping, and would not necessarily have had to retire, although I thought he probably would, and he did. 
retired or was retired. Uh, but just to see a, a actually, you're right. It's only four uh, who were replaced, not five. Uh, there were two retained. Uh, Zhao Leji and uh, Wang Huning were both retained. Um, what is interesting is that Zhao Leji went all the way up to number three. Um, he has a record of being in charge of basically party discipline uh, and and other very fun things like that. So he's definitely very close to Xi Jinping, definitely uh, somebody who has a great deal of clout within the party uh, and a lot of sort of negative power within the party. Wang Huning is a former political science professor, actually, uh, from Fudan University, who for about the last 20 years, 25 years, has been inside the party. Basically, he was co-opted out of the university into the party to play a role in sort of crafting ideology. And he has been sort of the chief ideologue of the Xi Jinping era, uh, coming up with all of these ideas of, you know, supposedly, it's probably hard to tell exactly where the genuine authorship is, but supposedly coming up with all these ideas of one belt, one road, the China dream, um, all this talk about rejuvenation, although that's an old trope, but bringing it up the way that it's been brought up again, uh, allegedly he is the person largely behind that. So is he the number two, Bill? No, he's oh. at number four. He's number four. So he's been made, he was at number four, I believe, and he stayed there. He didn't move up. Zhao Lezi moved up from uh, number six that he had been to number three. But then in at number two is Li Qiang. Right. And Li Qiang is most likely, if they stick to past precedent, going to be elected the new prime minister in March. And he was the party secretary of Shanghai. Yes, that's right. He also has a long track record of service with Xi Jinping in Shanghai, I believe, but also especially in Zhejiang province when Xi was the party secretary there. Most recently, Li Qiang was the official most directly linked to and responsible for Shanghai's very long and brutal lockdown that was extraordinarily unpopular uh, with Shanghai residents and got lots of bad press uh, and was viewed by many even inside China as quite harmful to the economy and needlessly draconian. So it's interesting that he's been elevated to this degree. It's also traditionally the case that the number two official and the person who becomes the prime minister has been tasked with taking charge of things like foreign policy and the economy, or at least the day-to-day management of foreign policy and the economy, uh, going all the way back to Zhou Enlai, actually, when he was prime minister. Um, Li Qiang is not considered an expert in either of these areas at all, really. Um, so it's interesting that he would be the person elevated to this post. Um, if we go down the list, then Tai Xi is the um, current party secretary of Beijing and also has a long record of service in places where Xi Jinping was posted earlier um, and is also very, very conservative uh, and has been put in charge of basically managing the party secretariat. But and when you say, see, sorry, I keep interrupting you because it's really interesting to get to, to flesh out the personalities. Mm. I think it's he's the one who he was 374th or something. So everyone's saying this is a, a surprise elevation of him. Um, is that him? I'm not sure. Uh, tai Xi, um, Ding Xuexiang, and uh, Li Xi are all fairly rapid elevations. Yeah. The last three on the Politburo, basically, they, they were not in the very top echelons of, of power before. And Ding Xuexiang was actually Xi Jinping's secretary um, and then essentially chief of staff uh, until now. So he also has a very close working relationship. 
Li Xi is a, a family friend of Xi Jinping for a long time. So, but would you say this is a, I mean, this is more ideological than technocratic in the, in the sense that, you know, that one of the things that was coming out was that the, the chap who is now second is likely to be prime minister is neither an expert on foreign policy or the economy. And yet yeah. he's going to be in charge of both. So presumably he's just going to be channeling his energy. Is that basically what's going to be happening? Um, most likely. I mean, I think it signals a shift away, yes, from any kind of technocratic order. But I think that's been in the works for quite some time. Right. I mean, if we think about sort of periodizing Chinese politics more broadly, I would say actually the last four party congresses have all signaled increasing retrenchment and, and moves away from economic reform and liberalization, as well as general political tightening. So all the way back to 2007. So 2007, 2012, 2017, and now this year, it's just sort of turning the crank further and further in that direction. Um, whereas there had been substantial loosening and liberalization at the 14th, 15th, and 16th mm -hmm. party congresses between 1992 and 2002. So, or, you know, running through those three up until 2007, really. And and how does the um, that rather awkward scene of the sort of ejection of Hu Jintao, I mean, how does that fit in? I mean, what was your reading of that, basically? Well, that's the biggest surprise. So in terms of the personnel changes that we just covered, uh, the specifics I didn't predict, and, and I don't know that anybody knew exactly what the lineup was going to be, but the direction of travel was clear, I think, to most of us, that this, something like this was going to emerge. The Hu Jintao incident is really mysterious and confusing. No one has the answer. There was even speculation the day after it happened around the internet that perhaps he just tested positive for COVID uh, and therefore had to be ejected. Uh, I really doubt that that's the case because those results would have come in before they started the public meeting uh, and he just wouldn't have come out and they probably would have said so because that would be actually a very reasonable explanation of why he couldn't be present in the current context in China especially. The official explanation is that it was a health problem. He encountered a health crisis at that time and, and had to be uh, escorted off stage to a rest area in the back. Um, I don't know if that's true. It appears to many people as though Hu Jintao has some sort of neurological condition, uh, perhaps uh, obviously some physical impairment and disability, possibly also cognitive. Uh, it's difficult to say. Some have said that he probably has dementia or something like this, but I don't know what the evidence for that is. Um, he looks a bit befuddled when he appears in public, which is quite rare, and he usually doesn't speak. So I don't know how coherent or not coherent he would be. Another aspect of this that's been sort of floated as a theory, if it's not actually a health issue, is that it could have been something to do with this little dossier of documents that was sitting on the, on the table uh, in front of Hu Jintao and in front, of, indeed, of all the delegates on, at the front table that they were looking at and talking about just before he was escorted out. And so several different videos of this have emerged, some of them quite short, some of them longer. The longest one that I've seen that covers the period before his removal um, was from Singapore's uh, Channel News Asia. It's about five or six minutes long. You can see maybe not even that long, so several minutes long, and you can see uh, the sort of run-up to the incident. And in that, he's looking at the documents in his folder and then talking with Li Zhanshu to his left, who was the uh, number three member of the Politburo Standing Committee up until now, until he retired just at the Congress, and to Xi Jinping on his right about something in these documents. 
Xi Jinping then points at several items on what appears to be a list in one of the documents, calls over an attendant, says something to him, says something to Li Zhanshu, and then Hu Jintao is asked to leave, or sort of helped up from his chair in order to leave. So the latest speculation, and I would emphasize it is speculation as far as I know, that I've heard is that the list was actually the list of the Politburo members because they had just voted on the Central Committee list and they were coming out to have the closing ceremony and they were about to vote after the ceremony in a closed session on the Politburo list and Politburo Standing Committee list. And so the speculation is that Hu Jintao did not agree with that list or raised issues around the list. Perhaps that this was a list that differed from what he had seen before or not what he agreed to or not what he wanted, uh, and that he said something about this and then was removed to prevent him from speaking or voting on that list. Um, I don't know if that's true, but that's, that's the latest speculation I've heard. So one of the things, Bill, I mean, I remember President Hu, who was Xi's predecessor. And coming back to the point that Ali raised earlier about that a transition from meritocracy or technocratic leadership and a possible closing down of economic openings. And my understanding is that President Hu, to some extent, was very much a quiet architect of some of that opening up. So is is that a tension with President Xi or what is the relationship between the two? Um, it's hard to say. The personal relationship or you know, sort of behind the scenes uh, fighting or lack of fighting is difficult to read. What is generally true, though, is that they're from different factions. So Hu Jintao is from something called the Communist Youth League faction. Uh, he was for a very long time the leader of the Communist Youth League and also the uh, director or president of the Central Party School, which is a training school for, for top-level officials and, and party members. And so alumni of the school and people from high up in the Youth League uh, became sort of acolytes or, or uh, protégés of Hu Jintao, including Li Keqiang, uh, the outgoing prime minister and, and number two uh, Politburo Standing Committee member. And so it could be, I mean, Xi Jinping is not from this faction, and in fact, everyone even linked to that faction has been removed uh, or, or has not made it onto the new Politburo list, let alone Politburo Standing Committee. So in some ways, the removal of Hu Jintao could be a very visual and direct signal that the days of that faction having any influence have ended. And some of the commentary was sort of saying they didn't have had to do it in the, unless he was ill. It clearly has to have been orchestrated in some way, because otherwise, why would they choose to do it when the foreign media were present? But is this all speculation because nobody really knows? Honestly, we don't know and we may never know. And if we do find out, it probably won't be for at least a decade or two. And when moments of drama like this happen in the party congress, we usually don't find out until much later, if indeed we really get the information at all uh, in any direct way. But I think the timing is quite curious because it happened about five minutes after the media were ushered back into the hall and all the delegates walked in for the closing ceremony. It didn't happen in the closed session that had just ended or indeed in the closed session that would happen after the ceremony. It happened in a very, very public way before any proceeding started when there was no obvious sign that he had fallen ill, at least not clearly on, on the video. It doesn't look as though he's in a health crisis. 
Also, the other aspect of it that surprises me if it is a health crisis, none of the other delegates turned to him to wish him well or even just to smile and, and say, you know, please have a good rest. They all sat there looking straight ahead, including those who were his, in fact, his protégés uh, and, and longtime friends. Uh, so it's, it seems odd if he were suffering a health crisis and had to be led away for medical attention that no one would say, oh, I hope you're okay uh, as, as he exited the stage. Bill, do you think it was like a, a sort of a prearranged choreographed exit? Or, or do you genuinely think actually that th- th- this was a sort of a cock-up? Or I mean, that I, I don't know, but I tend to think. I mean, that on the one hand, everyone always says everything at the Party Congress is scripted. That's right, and especially during Xi Jinping's era, that everything is completely scripted. There's no room for error. There's no room for anything spontaneous. But at the same time, I see this, and, and this may not be the way everyone would see it, or indeed the way Xi Jinping sees it himself. I see this as, a, as an embarrassment and a loss of face for Xi Jinping because it looks so awkward. It may make him look more powerful in some ways, but I think it actually is just very awkward and embarrassing. It would have been better, I think, to have this done behind the scenes in advance of the ceremony, if indeed it was really pre-planned. So I, I think it was a mistake in some way, but it's hard to say. So, Bill, moving on to... You talk quite a bit um, in previous uh, things that I've heard you talk about, about Xi's search for positive power. So sort of creating a sense of you know pride in belonging to China that the youth can sort of fall in behind. And there's other sort of phrases that have been used about, as you said, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. And that question about Xi's personal philosophy and how, whether this Congress was going to sort of introduce a sort of defining Xi philosophy, did it do any of that? Um, I'm not sure that we see a defining philosophy emerging from the Congress, but I think if we look at Xi Jinping's opening speech, which was much shorter than recent speeches have been, it was just about two hours instead of three or four, uh, as it often has been. Um, That's a brief speech, is it? Relatively, um, God. Part of the <laughs> part part of the reason why it wasn't longer, I suspect, is that the last time a couple of the older delegates were caught on camera falling asleep or nodding off, at least momentarily, uh, including Jiang Zemin, uh, who was present last time but not this time, uh, and so that again is very embarrassing, obviously. Uh, but it, it is difficult, I think, to sit there under the glare of the hot lights, completely still and not begin to nod a bit, especially because the speech essentially is a readout of the work report, which all of the delegates would already have seen. So it, it's not the most inspiring or novel statement to them. They've already seen it. The speech and work report this time, though, really did emphasize these notes of rejuvenation, of sort of creating a, a sort of national spirit uh, or, or a uh, positive spirit of the party, of the nation, and of, of uh, you know, sort of China more broadly. It is difficult to pin down exactly what's going to be done to promote this, though, because there's also an awful lot of stress on two terms, persistence and security. And persistence and security are not the most ideologically inspiring terms in a positive way. And so I think that 
overemphasis perhaps on these more conservative or dull aspects of ideology actually may undermine the project of building positive power. So I hadn't clocked those two terms. That's really interesting because that, again, sits at odds with some of the things that we had thought that China was becoming. And that the critical question about whether or not Xi's policy essentially is going to suffocate the Chinese economy, because he gives the impression of not really being interested in the private sector. He's taken action to bring back elements of private enterprise into state control. As you said, the elevation of the guy from Shanghai who's presided over a lockdown in China's thriving business sort of city. Is this a turning away from the liberalization of the economy? And and in a way, what does that mean? Because I think all the conversations we've been having for the last 10 years about the Thucydides trap and all the rest of it are essentially is about China growing as an economic competitor to the US. But is this she saying, actually, I, pro- I prioritize other things over access to Western markets, liberalization? What do we take from this? Yes, I think it is another step away from liberalization and prioritization of the economy. I would only stress, though, that I think this has been going on since at least 2007, right? That there's been this kind of phased withdrawal from the liberalization agenda uh, on the part of the Chinese party and state. So this is just the next step in that. It's not a change of direction as much as it is just a further step in the direction of where they were already going. I definitely think that the economy is not the top priority and that the top priority at this stage is security and maintenance of stability for the continued rule of the Communist Party and for Xi Jinping himself. They have decided to put that first and foremost and front and center rather than economic growth or other concerns. Xi Jinping even talks frequently of what he calls the new normal of lower growth. Uh, And he wants everybody to get used to the economy growing at, you know, sort of three to six percent instead of eight to 12 percent. And now the debate is, can they even grow at 3% uh, in a sustainable way? Or is China actually headed into a recession? If so, perhaps a severe and prolonged recession. And the zero COVID policies obviously don't help this, but there are also deeper structural issues in the Chinese economy that, as Suzanne, you point out correctly, uh, many of the current policies are not helping and in fact may be exacerbating. Do you think that's a recognition by them that this sort of, you know, inevitable massive economic growth well it's just not inevitable anymore and they they recognize that they're just not going to you know is it is it driven by the fact that they've come to the conclusion that they're not going to have these sort of growth rates going on forever basically on on some level i think yes and i think i think this is a, a source of great um not necessarily confusion but disagreement among experts and policymakers in china in that From about 1994 until about 2008, there was something that we could refer to as a coherent economic model based on export-oriented industrialization, foreign direct investment, and very high rates of economic growth in particular kinds of manufacturing, particularly what we could call export processing manufacturing. That era ends in 2008, I think, quite markedly and sharply with the global economic crisis and the tremendous slowdown in exports at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, and then the failure of those export markets to really bounce back, at least in the same sectors. Uh, A lot of jobs were lost, a lot of industries sort of 
faded away in many parts of China and they have not returned. And so I remember being in China at a conference about uh, the economy in 2010. And there were a couple of things that were said by experts and Chinese policymakers at that conference that really struck me. One was that China cannot any longer rely on export processing manufacturing. They need to find a new model based on higher consumption and higher value-added production in new sectors. The other uh, was that, well, one other thing they were saying was that the United States for China was literally too big to fail. That was the term they used as to why China would buy up U.S. bonds uh, during the crisis at the cost of essentially offshoring the U.S. inflationary pressure. China faced very high inflation uh, after the 2008 crisis. But there was a recognition also that these lower value-added sectors would not return, uh, that something would have to be found as a new model or else growth would be slower. And in the time since then, since 2010, they haven't really found that new model. But the second strand from that conference, which I've now go back to for a second, was that there was a general consensus that the era of dominance for the United States, Western Europe, and Northeast Asia, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, was over. That the 2008 crisis had signaled a sort of sea change and that the relative hegemony of the U.S. coming out of the Cold War was coming to an end, uh, and that now would be a moment of opportunity for China and for others to assume larger roles in the global economy. Now, what's interesting is that also hasn't really happened, at least not the way they predicted. Um, neither has that hegemonic position really eroded to such a degree, nor has China stepped in to fill the gap. And so... The lack of a new model and the lack of sort of shift in relative economic strength, I think, has left China in a difficult position. They've slowed down in growth before they got to the relative position they wanted, but without a new way forward. The Made in China 2025 uh, agenda that was floated for a while around 2016 uh, was an attempt to articulate a path forward. Uh, the investments in the tech sector that were very successful, actually, for a long time, and in e-commerce especially, uh, were an attempt to push China's economy in this kind of new direction based on higher value-added and domestic consumption. Uh, Xi Jinping in recent years actually has cracked down on the tech sector uh, and undermined particularly e-commerce, uh, not so much tech manufacturing, but e-commerce. Other countries have made tech manufacturing much harder to continue with uh, or to continue innovating and, and expanding it uh, in China. I think, Bill, because what's really interesting as well is that, that that then plays across immediately into the market. So so there's been China tech stocks have have fallen, I think, quite determinedly and, and other stocks have similarly dropped. So there is an immediate kind of, you know, global economic rationalising of the political direction and the impact of the political direction. Can I ask, because I know I'm interrupting you, but also... America's done something about semiconductors, hasn't it? Which, yeah, I'd like uh, to. I'd like to work which, out what that's about as well. Yeah, what's that about? Yeah, um, I, I should add, I'm not a particular expert on on semiconductors or tech manufacturing. I did have a really productive conversation as part of our series uh, with Doug Fuller, now of the Copenhagen Business School, who mm -hmm. is an expert in this area. Actually, probably one of the top experts in the world on this area. And from that conversation and from other things that I've read about it, I can tell you that basically the U.S. has restricted access for China to two aspects of 
inputs for semiconductor production, neither of which China has the capability right now to produce on their own. So there's a software uh, system that is owned by U.S. companies uh, and controlled, therefore, by, by the U.S., um, which is necessary for plotting out how to etch the circuits into the chip at a certain size. Uh, chips, once they get below a certain size, uh, become much harder to actually manufacture, and the etching of circuits into them has to be sort of choreographed by a particular kind of software. That software is U.S.-controlled and no longer can be exported to China or, or licensed for use in China. There's also hardware for actually doing this etching, the technology for which is also controlled by the U.S., but most of the manufacture of this hardware actually takes place in the Netherlands and Japan by Dutch and Japanese companies, some of whom had existing contracts and in fact had produced machines for export to China at the time the U.S. Uh, restrictions came in and they had to abruptly cancel the shipments and are not necessarily very happy, those companies, uh, with the U.S. at having imposed these restrictions uh, so, so suddenly, but they've complied with them. And then, of course, most of the actual chip manufacture, though, is not being done in mainland China. Most of it's actually being done in Taiwan, mm. uh, or at least a very high share. I don't know if it's most globally, but it's, it's a significant share of the global production of, of high-end semiconductors is, in fact, done in Taiwan using Japanese and Dutch machines to etch circuits onto very small chips in plans developed and, and deployed with U.S. software. So it's quite a, a globalized production network, but one that essentially excludes China uh, even from the beginning and now by design fully excludes China uh, from that loop. So the only way that China can continue expanding into higher end semiconductors, at least easily, would be either for the U.S. to rescind these restrictions or for China to innovate on their own, both the software and the hardware. Or, to, um, or to take over Taiwan. You missed out option um, three there, Bill. <laughs> well, Taiwan also does not control those technologies. They're just manufacturing the chips, right? They don't control yeah. the technologies for the software or the hardware. And invasion of Taiwan would entail essentially destroying Taiwan, as I think we were talking about the last time. Uh, yeah. So I, I actually don't think that's on the agenda, certainly not for the purpose of gaining access to the, the semiconductors. Uh, Bill, how significant is this uh, U.S. move for China's sort of economic development? I mean, is, is this something that they'll see as a threat to their economic development? I think so. I think certainly it's not seen as a friendly move uh, yeah. by China, but I, I don't think it by itself is devastating because they already were not really manufacturing those semiconductors uh, at any scale. So you don't right? think it's something that could provoke them into some action as, as no. Suzanne was into me. <laughs> no. My brilliant idea. No, <laughs> no I, I don't mean, think so. Yeah. It's not like, uh, you know, the, the oil ban in Japan in 1940 or whatever it was. Um, the other thing that you said, and I just wanted to drill down a bit, you said that um, for China, America's too big to fail. Is that right? Mm. Is that what you said? That was back I mean, in 2010. That was the thing. Ah, yeah. 2010. So, I mean, it's yeah. not a question that the Chinese economy is now so... I mean, it, does, it doesn't have a sort of a dependent relationship with, with the United States, is, in that sense. Well, it, it does on some level, does, not just right. the United States. But if you take yeah. the United States, the Eurozone, um, and a few other parts of the world, that is a very substantial part of China's export market. And 
you know, if you take the U.S. and the eurozone alone, that that that's a tremendous share of China's export markets. And if those economies don't want to trade with China at the same level or in the same way that they had been before, China is still quite dependent on export manufacturing uh, to drive its economic growth, and that will hurt that growth. And in fact, the U.S. has been putting more and more restrictions on trade with China since 2017. Uh, and so it's it's again sort of of a piece with a trend that started under the Trump administration and has continued in the Biden administration of sort of tightening restrictions on trade with China. If we look at the Eurozone now, they're actually thinking about moving in the same direction as well. There's more and more talk across Europe of restricting trade with China or, or, or pulling back from too much dependence on trade with China. So I think China's definitely threatened by this in terms of its ongoing economic potential. So, I mean, in terms of the economic balance of power, we, we always sort of tend to think about the Chinese, you know, turning off the tap and the impact that will have on, you know, our development and others. But in your reading, basically, this is also going to have a significant impact on China itself. I mean, it's not something that it could do without a considerable amount of pain to itself, effectively. Oh, yes. No, I, I yeah. think it already is affecting China in a negative way and, and will continue to get worse unless the trend reverses, which I don't think it will. Can I ask, following up on that, um, Bill, the question about discontent and protests. So there's an argument that you, one could make that the opening up of China, the allowing of people to move and trade and buy lovely things, has been one of the things which has reduced the discontent and enabled the system to continue. And what what it appears that we're getting with President Xi's continuation in office, the new Politburo, with the, the focus on maintenance of stability is essentially a reducing of some of those opportunities and accesses. And the question is then how people respond to that, because naturally people's response, if they've had something and it's being taken away, that creates a discontent. And the only way that you suppress that discontent is by is by really taking it away. So persistence and security starts to feel, you know, putting in power the man who's locked down Shanghai starts to feel like you're doubling down on attitudes towards protest and discontent. That's a really gloomy sort of set of circumstances that I've outlined. Do you think that that is one way it might go or is that too gloomy? Um, I think that there's a great deal of social discontent in China. I think there has been for a long time. Uh, it sort of is an undercurrent in Chinese politics. There's a great deal of discontent and a great deal of social contention and mobilization, in fact, uh, that happens every day for a very long time. What I think has changed is that you know, most people get angry uh, in most societies, either because they feel too poor or they feel too constrained in their daily lives, one or the other. They feel in some way sort of constrained or, or, or hemmed in, hampered in their daily activities, or they, they're insufficiently uh, well-off in material terms. So, you know, the, the explosion of inequality that happened with China's reform era growth made a lot of people feel that they were much worse off. And in many cases, they were in absolute terms much worse off uh, and motivated a lot of people to uh, protest. I think that continues to do so. Um, what has changed recently is that if we think of sort of social restrictions as a bubble or as a sort of uh, glass cage, as it were, um, you don't see the restrictions until you get to the edge of what's acceptable. 
And I think the circumference of or the, the diameter of the bubble has been shrinking uh, over the last, say, 15 years and rather dramatically over the last five years, especially with zero COVID and lockdowns. No one in China now is unaware of the edges of the bubble. Everyone has hit them at some point or been hemmed in by them. And, and the lockdowns are just the most extreme version of that. And the fact that they keep going on for such a long time and they keep coming up when people can see that in the rest of the world, this is long since stopped. Um, and when many people feel, at least in China, that locking down a city of 30 million people for four positive cases that showed up somewhere is a bit too draconian. I think it's not a coincidence that most of the particularly more spectacular incidents of protests that we've seen have been about lockdown and against the zero COVID uh, policies. The other thing is more people will feel poor when the economy is in recession or growing at 3% than if the economy is growing at 8 to 10%, right? It's, it's not that everyone was getting rich before, but a lot of people were. And even those who were poor were in some cases able to find uh, new opportunities. If the economy really isn't growing, it's going to be that much harder. So we're going to have to wrap it up here, Bill. Uh, we haven't even we haven't even started to talk about China on the world's you know foreign policy, which, as you say, they 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 appear to be downgrading. But there's a heck of a lot going on. So we're obviously, going to have to get you back for part two. But to wrap it up, basically, she has consolidated power. He has, I think, broken precedent by not naming a successor as well. That's, I believe that to be the case. So, so I think the message we're getting from you is one of China closing in a little bit and focusing yeah, on inwards it. by the sounds. Yeah, of it. is that what? What is what are your what are your takeaway lines for us before we before we stop? Oh, very much so. I, I think that, that certainly China is turning inward and turning in a much more conservative direction in many ways uh, and has been doing so for a while. I think what's impressive now is that Xi Jinping has made it very clear that he cannot leave power. Um, even if he wanted to, he could not step down and feel secure. Um, and so he needs to stay on at this point, at least as long as he can. So I would say not just another five years, almost certainly another 10, barring a health crisis or something like this, um, or really unforeseen turn of events, maybe longer. In 10 years' time, he'll be, I think, one month younger than Joe Biden is right now. Hmm. So, you know, he could stay on for quite a while. So a spring chicken still. Yeah, right. <laughs> he could stay on for quite a while. Um, I think his absolute intention is to do so. I do think foreign policy has been downgraded. I definitely think international trade, international links, and globalization, engagement with the global economy generally are, are pretty much off the agenda, or at least downgraded so far that no one is going to argue that they should take precedence over almost anything else, and that persistence and security are the new sort of orders of the day uh, for Chinese politics for the foreseeable future, and not only about COVID. Uh, so it's a somewhat grim picture if one likes liberalization. Yeah, it sort well, of fits a it fits a theme, I have to say, Bill, of our recent uh, our recent podcasts. It's uh, yeah. not the most uh, optimistic vision of the future, but uh, no, but it's also not the most pessimistic because yeah. I don't think that China is immediately going to turn around and become belligerent uh, in yeah. any way that it isn't already um, on the world stage. 
I don't think that uh, China is going to collapse immediately and deteriorate into some kind of civil strife. You know, there there are worse scenarios, yeah, much worse certainly. scenarios than this. This is a sort of we could say low level equilibrium that isn't particularly hopeful, but also is not as dire. It's grim, but not dire. Certainly doing better than Russia and Iran, I think. Right now, at least, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, there's worse mottos to have than maintenance of stability. Right. I, know, right. I know it sounds sinister if you say it in one way, but actually, frankly, there's quite a lot of the world that could, would quite like a bit of stability mm. <laughs> to be maintained. So let's read it in a slightly positive frame of mind. And thank you, Bill, very much for that masterful explanation of what's just happened in China. And we will get you on again to talk about China's foreign policy, particularly given that stuff seems to be going on in North Korea and we haven't talked about that. So this is part one and look out for part two. It's goodbye from me. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.